Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Today I am speaking with Renee Deresta. Renee is the Director of Research at New Knowledge and the Head of Policy at the nonprofit Data for Democracy. And she investigates the spread of hyperpartisan and destructive narratives across social networks. She's co-authored a recent report on the, the Russian disinformation campaign, both before and since the 2016 presidential election. And uh, we talk about all that. She's advised politicians and policymakers, members of Congress, the State Department. Her work has been featured in the New York Times and the Washington Post and CNN and, and many other outlets. She's a member of the Council on Foreign Relations and a Truman National Security Project Security Fellow. She also holds degrees in computer science and political science from SUNY Stony Brook. As you'll hear, Renee was recommended to me by my friend and former podcast guest, Tristan Harris, who recommended her as an authority on just what happened with the Russian influence campaign in recent years. And uh, Renee did not disappoint. So, without further ado, I bring you Renee Deresta. I am here with Renee Deresta. Renee, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Sam. I was introduced to you through our mutual friend, Tristan Harris. How do you know Tristan? Tristan and I met in uh, mid-2017. I had written an essay about bots, and, uh, and he read it. And he shared it to Facebook, funny enough. And uh, we discovered that we had about 60 mutual friends, even though we'd never met. And uh, we met for breakfast a couple days later. And he wanted to talk about what I was seeing and the things I was writing about and how they intersected with his vision of, of social platforms as having profound impacts on individuals. My uh, research into how social platforms are having profound impacts on policy and society. And uh, we had breakfast, hit it off, and I think had breakfast again a couple days later. So yeah. uh, fast friends. Yeah, well, Tristan is great. He's, so many people will recall he's been on the podcast, and I think he's actually been described as the conscience of Silicon Valley, just in terms of how he has been sounding the alarm on the toxic business model of social media in particular. So uh, you touched on it there for a second, but give us a, a snapshot of your background and how you come to be thinking about the problem of bots and also just the specific problem we're going to be talking about of the Russian disinformation campaign and hacking of democracy. Yeah, so it's sort of a convoluted um, way that I got to uh, to investigating Russia and disinformation. It actually started Back in 2014, I became a mom, and I was uh, I just moved to San Francisco a little bit prior, and I had to get my kid onto a preschool waiting list, which is not always easy. Thing. Yeah, <laughs> not not like a nice preschool, just like a preschool. And I uh, and I and I I knew California had some anti-vax problems, and I started googling for the data sets. The California Depart Department of Public Health has uh, public data sets where they tell you vaccination rates in schools. Anyway, I looked and I thought, God, this is a this is a disaster waiting to happen. And um, lo and behold, a couple months later, the Disneyland measles outbreak, in fact, did happen. And I reached out to my congressman. It was the first time I'd ever done that. And I said, hey, you know, we should have a law for this now. We should, we should eliminate the vaccine opt-outs. And they told me they were introducing something. So I said, great, I'd, I'd love to help. You know, I have a data science background. I can maybe be useful as an analyst. And what wound up happening was that there was this extraordinary um, thing as the, as the bill took shape which was that the legislators were finding that polling in their districts was about 85% positive. Like people really liked 
the idea of eliminating what were called personal belief exemptions, the right to just kind of voluntarily opt your kids out. But the social media conversation was like 99% negative. It was very hard to even find a single positive tweet or positive Facebook post expressing support for this bill. And so I started looking into why that was and discovered this entire kind of ecosystem of what was this hybrid between almost activism and manipulation. So there were very real activists who had very real points of view. And then they were doing things like using automation. So the reason that they were dominating the Twitter ecosystem was that they were actually turning on automated accounts. So they were just kind of spamming the hashtags that anytime you search for anything related to the bill in the hashtag, you would find their content. So this is kind of, you know, this is sort of like a um, guerrilla marketing tactic. And I thought how interesting that they were using it. And then realized that there were like fake personas in there. There, (laughs) There were people pretending to be from California who weren't from California. How are you figuring that out? How were you assessing a fake persona? Oh, they, were, uh, they were created within days of the bill being introduced, and they, were, um, they existed solely to talk about this bill. And then I discovered these communities on Facebook, things with names like Tweet for Vaccine Freedom, where there were actually moderators in the group who were posting instructions on for people from out of state how they could get involved. And the answer was create a persona, change your, your location ID to somewhere in California, and then start tweeting. So they sort of, you know, kind of... Um, At the time, it seemed brazen. Now it seems so quaint. But these tactics to shape consensus, to really create the illusion that there was a mass consensus in opposition to this bill. And so a very small group of people using social media as an amplifier were able to achieve dominance, to to just really own the conversation. And it led me to think this is is fascinating because what we have here is um, this form of activism where there is kind of like a real core, and then there's some manipulative tactics layered on top of the real core. But if you're not looking for the manipulation, you don't see it, and most people aren't going looking, you know, they're not digging into this stuff. So it was a kind of a first indication that our policy conversations, our social conversations, were not necessarily reflective of, you know, kind of the reality on the ground, the, the stuff that we were still seeing in the polls. It was, a, it was an interesting experience. And then a couple months after that law was all, you know, all done, I got a call from, uh, from the, some folks in the Obama administration in the digital service saying, hey, you know, we've, we've read your research, because I published about this in Wired. Hey, we've read your research. We'd like you to come down and, uh, and, and look at some of the stuff that's going on with ISIS. And I said, you know, I don't know anything about, about ISIS or, or about terrorism, candidly. And they said, no, no, you have to understand the tactics are identical the same kind of, you know, kind of owning the narrative, owning the hashtags, reaching out to people, pulling them into secret Facebook groups. The idea that the terrorists were actually following some of these kind of radicalization pathways, these efforts to kind of dominate the conversation. Anytime there was a real world event related to ISIS, they would get things trending on Twitter. And so people in the administration wanted to understand how this was happening and what they could do about it. So that was how I wound up getting more involved in this in sort of a more um, official capacity was uh, first kind of conspiracy theorists and terrorists. And then and then Russia was um, Russia was following the, the 2016 election. There was a sense that, again, there had been these bizarre bot operations and they were far more nefarious and sophisticated than anyone had realized. And we had to do a formal investigation. Mm. Well, before we get into the Russia case specifically, how do you view the the role of social media in this? Do you distinguish between the culpability or the negligence 
of Twitter versus Facebook versus YouTube? Are there bright lines between how they have misplayed this or um, are they very similar in the role they're playing? I think that, you know, they've kind of, they've really evolved a lot since 2015. In the early conversations about ISIS, there was a, you know, just to kind of take you back to, to 2015, the attitude wasn't, oh, God, we've got terrorists on our platform. <laughs> Let's get ahead of this, right? It was, um, you know, Facebook, to its credit, took that attitude from day one. It was just, this is a violation of our terms of service. We take down their content. We find them. We shut them down. YouTube would kind of take down the beheading videos as they popped up. Twitter, if you go back and you read articles from 2015, as you know, I've been doing a lot of um, going back and looking at the conversations from that time, you see a lot of sympathy for Twitter and this idea that if you take down ISIS, what comes next? This is a slippery slope. Right, and, yes. you know, <laughs> and it was interesting. Interesting, interesting koan to ponder. Right. Well, <laughs> like what, Satan. <laughs> so, it was, you know, well, I mean, if we take down ISIS, I mean, who knows what we have to take down next? You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And, you know, and I would be sitting there in these rooms hearing these conversations saying, like, these are beheading videos, you guys. These are terrorist recruiters. These are people who are killing people. What the hell is this conversation? I, I, I can't get my head around it. But that's where we were in 2015. And, and, you know, go back and read things that people like the, you know, entities like the EFF were putting out. And you'll see that, that this was a, a topic of, of deep concern. What would, you know, what would happen if we were to silence ISIS? Would we inadvertently silence things that were tangentially related to ISIS? And then from there, would we silence, you know, certain types of, uh, of, of expression of Islam and so on and so forth? And, and it, was a, it was a very different kind of mindset back then. I think that the context has changed so much over the last year, in part because of stuff like what Tristan is doing and the tech hearings. And I think that 2016 was almost like the sort of, you know, Pearl Harbor that made people realize that, you know, holy shit, this actually does have an impact. And, and uh, maybe we do have to do something to get ahead of this because everybody's doing it now. Reading recent articles specifically about Facebook makes me think that, it, it, that there is just an insuperable problem here. You can't put enough people on it to appropriately vet the content, and the algorithms don't seem to be up to it. And so the mistakes that people plus algorithms are making are so flagrant. I mean, they're preserving, you know, the the accounts of known terrorist organizations. They're deleting the accounts of, you know, Muslim reformers or ex-Muslims who simply say something critical about the faith. I mean, there's just People can't figure out which end is up, apparently. And once you view these platforms as publishing platforms that are responsible for their content, it's understandable that you would want to, given the kinds of things we're going to talk about. But I don't know how they solve this. There's a lot of, uh, you know, Tristan and others have done a lot of work on changing the conversation around culpability and accountability. And I think that, again, in 2015, 2016, you know, there would be references to things like the CDA 230, the Communication Decency Act, Section 230, that gives them the right to moderate, which they chose to use as the right to not moderate. And the norms, I would say, that, that evolved in the industry around not wanting to be seen as being censors in any way at the time, which meant that they left a whole lot of stuff up and didn't really do very much digging. And then now the shift, kind of the pendulum swinging hard in the other direction, which is leading to allegations that 
that conservatives are being censored and allegations that, per your point, unsophisticated moderation, I, I think there was an article about this in the New York Times over the weekend, has led to some disasters where they take down people fighting extremists in Myanmar and link yeah. the extremists up. So, yeah, there's a, I, I think that the recognition that they are culpable, that fundamental change in the attitudes of the public has led them to to start to try to take more responsibility. And right now it's being done in something of kind of a ham-handed way. Yeah, well, they're certainly culpable for the business model that I have kind of a less of a, a view of Twitter here because Twitter doesn't seem to have its business model together in the way that Facebook does. But clearly Facebook, you know, per Tristan's point, that their business model promotes outrage and sensationalism preferentially. And the fact that they continue to do that is, is just selecting for these crazy conspiratorial divisive voices. And then they're trying to you know, kind of curate against those, but they're still amplifying those because it's their business model. I mean, at least that's the way it seems as of my recent reading of the New York Times. Is that still your understanding of the bad geometry over there? Yeah, I would say that's accurate. So I see a lot of, um, you know, I, I try to focus on the, the disinformation piece. There are some people who work on privacy, some who think about monopoly, you know, a lot of different grievances with tech platforms these days. But I see a lot of the, the manipulation specifically, I would say, comes from a combination of three things. There's this mass consolidation of audiences on a handful of very few platforms. And that's just because as the web moved from these kind of, you know, decentralization, where there, there's always been manipulation and disinformation and lies on the internet, right? But the mass consolidation of audiences onto a very small handful of platforms meant that if you were going to run a manipulative campaign, much like if you were going to run a campaign for, you know, Pepsi, you only had to really blanket five different sites. And then the second piece was the precision targeting, right? So the ads business model, the thing that you're referring to, these are attention brokers, which means they make money if you spend time on the platform. So they gather information about the user in order to show the user things that they want to see so that they stay on the platform. And then also as they're gathering that information, it does double duty in that they can use it to, to help advertisers target them. And then I would say the last piece of this is the algorithms that you're describing and the fact that for a very, very long time now, they've been very easy to game. And when we think about you know, what you're describing, the idea that that outrage gets clicks, that's true. And the algorithm, particularly things like the recommendation engines, they're not sophisticated enough to know what they're showing. So there is no sense of downstream harm or psychological harm or any other type of harm. All they know is this content gets clicks and this content drives engagement. And if I show this content to this person, they're going to stay on the platform longer. I can, you know, mine them for more data. I can show them more ads. So it's, it's beneficial to them to do this. And I think one of the interesting challenges here is as we think about recommendation engines, that's where there is, in my opinion, a greater sense of culpability and a, and a greater requirement for responsibility on the part of the platforms. And that's because they've moved into acting as a, as a, as a curator, right? They're, they're saying, you should see this. And the recommendation engines in particular often surface things that are not necessarily, you know, <laughs> what we would necessarily want them to be showing. This is how you get at things like, you know, my anti-vaxxers, right? The, uh, I had an anti-vax uh, account, an account that, that was active in anti-vax groups. And it didn't engage with any of the people. It just sort of sat in the groups and, you know, kind of observed. And it was being referred into Pizzagate groups. 
Mm-hmm. So long before Pizzagate was a matter of national conversation, long before that guy showed up with a gun and shot up a pizza place thinking that Hillary Clinton was running a sex dungeon out of the basement, these personas that were prone to conspiratorial thinking, the recommendation engine recognized that there was a correlation in people who were prone to conspiracy, you know, conspiracy type A would be interested in Pizzagate, which we can call conspiracy type B. And then soon enough, QAnon started to show up in the uh, in the recommendation engine. And so the, the question becomes, you know, where where is the line? You know, do what the, the platform is actively making a recommendation here. These accounts have never gone and proactively searched for Pizzagate and QAnon. They're, they're being suggested to them. So where is the responsibility? Should we have the recommendation engine not surface that type of content or is even making that suggestion? A form of censorship. This, these are the kinds of conversations I think we'll start to see more of in 2019. Okay, well, let's focus on the topic at hand, which is Russian interference in, I guess, democracies everywhere, but specifically the, the U.S. presidential election in 2016 and the recent report that you helped produce on this, which is, runs to 100 pages. And I'll put a link to that where I post this on my blog. First, I just got a big picture, sort of political partisan question. It seems to me that many people, certainly most Trump supporters, continue to doubt whether Russia interfered in anything in 2016. And this is just, you know, this is fake news. Is there any basis for doubt about that at this point? Nope. This is just crystal clear as a matter of what our intelligence services tell us and as a matter of what people like you can ascertain by just studying online behavior. It happened. There's, there's really nothing else to say about it. The intelligence agencies know it happened. The foreign governments know it happened. Researchers know it happened. The platforms acknowledge it happened. I mean, you know, sure, there can be some small group of people who continues to, you know, live like ostriches, but that doesn't mean that it didn't happen. And what do you do with the charge that we do the same thing all the time everywhere ourselves? So there's, not, there's really nothing to complain about here. Well, we, I mean, we probably do it to each other at this point, right? There's uh, evidence of that as far back as 2016, you know, some things that, um, insinuations about Alabama, there's a whole lot of, lot of, you know, evidence that domestic groups can and do do this as well. And, and that's why what I, what I keep going to when I talk about this topic publicly is that this is not a partisan issue. This is not a one, you know, one state, uh, you know, one, one foreign actor interfering in one moment issue. This is sort of just an ongoing global challenge at this point. If we're speaking specifically about Russia and whether that happened, I, I think that uh, it's, it's incontrovertible truth at this point. Yeah, and the other thing that seems incontrovertible is that it happened to favor the election of Trump in many obvious ways and, and in many surprising ways that we'll go into. But it, they were not playing both sides of this. This was not a pro-Clinton campaign. And in your report, you break down three ways which their meddling influence things and or, or attempted to influence things. We're going to be talking about one of them, but, but I'll just run through those three quickly and then we'll focus on one. The first is there were attempts to actually hack online voting systems. And, you know, that, that's been reported on elsewhere. Secondly, there, were, there was just this very well-known and consequential cyber attack on the Democratic National Committee and the leaking of that material through WikiLeaks. And that was obviously to the great disadvantage of the Clinton campaign. Then finally, and this is what we're going to focus on, there was just the, the social influence 
based on the disinformation campaign of the sort that you're you've just described using bots and fake personas and targeting various groups and I, this was surprising that when you get into the details of who was targeted and the kinds of messages that were spread it's fairly sophisticated and you know amazingly cynical there's a kind of morbid fun you can imagine these people were having at our expense in how they played one community against another in american society so let's focus on this third method and this was coming from something called the Internet Research Agency. What, what we'll call them the IRA, as you do in your report. What is the IRA, and uh, what were they doing to us? So the IRA is, uh, you could think of them a little bit as a um, social media marketing agency meets an intelligence agency. So what they did, to a large extent, was they kind of built these pages, they built these communities, they built these personas, and they pretended to be Americans. Uh, Americans of all stripes. So some were Southern Confederates, some were Texas secessionists, some were black liberationists. It really, they, they had all of these personas. They really ran the gamut. What they were doing was they were creating pages to appeal to tribalism. So a lot of the, a lot of the conversation about the IRA over the last two years has referred to this idea that they were exploiting divisions in society. And that's true. But the data set that I had access to, which was provided by the tech platforms to the Senate Intelligence Committee, was the first time that uh, anybody saw the full scope, you know, through the full two and a half years. And what we saw there was not a media marketing, you know, meme shit poster type agency that was just throwing out memes haphazardly and, and trying to exploit divisions. What they were trying to do was grow tribes. So a little bit, a little bit different. The IRA originally started as an entity that was designed to propagandize to Russian citizens, to Ukrainian citizens, to people who were in Russia's sphere of influence. And the early stuff in the data set, Twitter provided the earliest possible uh, information of the, of the material the companies gave us, was actually Russian language tweets talking about the invasion of Crimea. It was talking about, you know, it was creating conspiracy theories about the downing of the Malaysia Airlines flight MH17. So the early activities of the IRA were very much focused inward, focused domestically. And then around 2015, they turned their energy to the United States in what the Mueller and some of the Eastern District Court indictments have been referring to as Project LOCTA. So Project LOCTA was when the, uh, the effort to grow these American tribes really started. This precedes the election, right? So this precedes Trump's plausible candidacy. And there was still this goal of amplifying tribalism in the U.S. Yeah, so the goal was to, uh, to create these. So this was a long game. This was not a, a short-term social media operation to, to screw around with an election. This was a long game to develop extended relationships, trusted relationships with Americans and what they did was they created these pages. So an example would be Heart of Texas was a page that really amplified notions of Texas pride. Almost all of their pages, an LGBT page, pages targeting the black community, pages targeting Confederate aficionados, all of these pages were designed around the idea of pride and pride in whatever particular tribe they were targeting. So the vast majority of the content particularly in 2015 in the early days, was, you know, we are LGBT and proud. We are Texas and proud, you know, Texans and proud. We are proud descendants of Confederates. 
And so this idea that you should have pride in your tribe was what they reinforced over and over and over and over again. And then you would see them periodically slide in content that was either that was either political or divisive. Most sometimes that would be about othering another group. So we are, you know, some of the um the 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 content targeting the black community in particular did this. This country is not for us. We're not really part of America. We are we exist outside of America. And so a lot of uh, a lot of exploitation of real grievances tied to real news events. So constant drumbeat of pride plus leveraging real harms to exploit feelings of alienation. Sometimes you would see them do this with political content. So as the primaries heated up, that was where you started to see them weaving in their support for candidate Trump, weaving in their opposition to candidate Clinton. I'm looking at your report now and I'm seeing this list of themes. And I'll just tick off some of these because it's, again, rather diabolical and clever how they were playing both sides of the board here. So they would focus on you know, the black community and Black Lives Matter and, and issues of police brutality, but also they would amplify pro-police, Blue Lives Matter pages. You had anti-refugee messages and you know immigration border issues, Texas culture, as you said, Southern culture, Confederate history, various separatist movements, Muslim issues, LGBT issues, meme culture, red pill culture, gun rights in the Second Amendment, pro-Trump and anti-Clinton, and more anti-Clinton in the form of pro-Bernie Sanders and Jill Stein, Tea Party stuff, religious rights, Native American issues. And all of this is just sowing divisiveness and conflict. Although it really does seem that there was, to a surprising degree, a focus on the black community. Do you have more information about, or, or just an opinion about why that was such an emphasis for them? Yeah. So there were about, there were 81 Facebook pages, 133 Instagram accounts. Of the 81 Facebook pages, 30 focused on the black community. Now, there were, there were other pages that focused on other kind of traditionally left-leaning groups, as, as you mentioned, uh, Muslims, um, Native Americans, Latinos. So there was, you know, there were other kind of non-black lefty pages. Before we go on, Renee, I just, so th those numbers don't sound very large. So 81 Facebook pages sounds like not even a drop in the ocean. I think we should give some sense of the scale of, of what happened here. Yes. So there were 81 Facebook pages. I think there were about 62,000 posts across them. There were 133 Instagram accounts, 116,000 posts across them. There were about 187 million engagements on the Instagram content and another 75 million engagements on the Facebook content. And an engagement is like a like or a share or a comment. The pages, to, to be totally, totally clear, they had what I would call like a long tail. Like 20 of them were successful enough that they had, you know, in the hundreds of thousands of followers. And then a lot of the remainder, the long tail, was just crap. They were just failed pages. And so one of the things that was actually interesting was you could see them in the data set pivoting those pages, so pivoting their failures, going in there and actually and, and saying like, okay, well, one example is the Army of Jesus page. A, a lot of people have seen some of the memes of like Hillary fighting Satan. There were about 900 posts by that account before it found Jesus. It started as a Kermit the Frog meme page. 
you know, memes of like Kermit sipping tea and stuff. And they didn't seem to get enough traction there. They pivoted it to a Simpsons meme page. And it was, uh, you know, sharing these kind of ridiculous Homer Simpson memes, again, just like messing around with American culture, seeing what stuck. When that didn't stick, all of a sudden it became a religious page devoted to Jesus. That seemed, they seemed to have then kind of like nailed it. You start to see the memes doing things like like for Jesus. When you do something like, say, like, like for Jesus, share for Jesus, they're getting people to share their content organically. So you actually see them kind of hitting their stride with uh, standard kind of tactics of social media audience growth with examples like this, this Army of Jesus account. So there's, it's absolutely true that many of their pages were complete failures that had no lift. But then some of their pages were actually, if you go and you uh, look at the audience reach using things like CrowdTangle and you look at their engagements versus the engagements for other conservative pages or other black media, you do see them kind of popping up in the you know, top 20, top 50 in terms of engagement overall. So when, you know, am, am I saying this, these were like the best possible pages for this content for these audiences? No. But what they did do was they achieved substantial success with some of them and they used their successful pages to direct people to their other pages. So the black community was particularly, they did this particularly, uh, this was a, I can't say effectively necessarily because I, I can't see the conversion data. I know that they showed people these other memes. I don't know if people converted to the page for these other memes. But what they were doing was they were saying, if you like this content from our page Blackstagram that you're following, here's some other, you know, hey, look at this other group called Williams and Calvin. Now, of course, there's no disclosure that the Internet Research Agency is also running Williams and Calvin. And then they're saying, look at this other content from this page called Blacktivist. Look at this other content from this page called Nefertiti's Community. So a lot of this kind of cross-pollination of audiences in an attempt to push people so that if they're following one of their accounts, one of their pages, they're inundated with posts from the others. Right. And they're also amplifying legitimate pages. If you'd like to continue listening to this podcast, you'll need to subscribe at samharris.org. You'll get access to all full-length episodes of the Making Sense podcast and to other subscriber-only content, including bonus episodes and AMAs and the conversations I've been having on the Waking Up app. The Making Sense podcast is ad-free and relies entirely on listener support. And you can subscribe now at samharris.org.